Today's episode contains frank talk about death and suicide. Many of the stories we wish we never had to tell are about tragedy. You know, those deep, painful experiences that we want to store away in a little box in the corner of our minds. Today's story is that kind of story. It's a story about suffering and grief unlike any other. The unbearable pain of losing a child and the unbearable knowledge that it might have been preventable. But instead of locking it away, Carol and Steve Cohen have made a decision to share their story. Concealing it is really the differentiator between whether you make it or you don't make it. But any time we have to retell that moment and that day, we just dissolve. From WBZ Chicago, this is The Trouble with Shannon Case. Your son, Michael, tell me about him. It's hard to know where to begin with Michael. Um, Michael was, I would say, everything you could ever want in a child. I, I, this makes me laugh in sort of a sad way, but, you know, Michael literally came out of the womb and did not cry. Hmm. Um, I've never heard of a baby not crying. And Michael had a smile on his face, essentially permanently after that. Michael was just a wonderful, wonderful child, and, and everybody everybody loved him and respected him and cared about him, and he cared very deeply for other people. Yeah, he grew into an adult who continued to have deep, caring relationships with other people, his siblings with us, with his friends, and that was really a hallmark of, of who he was. Carol and Steve Cohen live in Boston, and have four children. The son we're talking about today, Michael, was the oldest. The four of them together were a really close unit. So, uh, you know, to have him not be part of that unit now is... uh. Michael died in February of 2018. He was 28. Michael was everything you would want from first child or any child, uh, to sort of set the tone. He was the warmest, nicest, smartest, most giving person you could ever imagine. In growing up, Michael had a lot of interests. He was great at math, he was an exceptional writer, and he loved music. He knew everything you could imagine about music. Um, Not as a performer, but as a Listener. <laughs> well, and like, a, what, 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 like, what things would you hear playing in his room? Well, he was like, he was a DJ and into DJ and mixing and the technical side of it. Well, he too. would do things like, you know, Michael and I had a little bit of a joke that I could always tell he was who had driven the car last <laughs> because the radio would be set to something that I did not want to listen to. <laughs> but, uh, but on the other hand, 10 plus years ago, more than that, maybe, Michael started. For my birthday and Father's Day, he would make me a CD. 
and then later became a playlist. And I, I think about it and I think about how there's a lot of music that I really like that I would never have found if it wasn't for Michael. And I, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of music out there that I would love and I will never know about because Michael's not there to introduce me to it. And it wasn't just music. Michael was fascinated with a lot of things. But there was one that seemed to rise to the top of his list over and over again. Starting in sixth grade, he started taking Mandarin in our public schools because the Chinese teacher came in and said they were starting a Mandarin program. And he said he wanted to do it. And we said, that sounds great. And that became a dominant theme in his life. And he ended up taking Chinese for a number many years and went to China a number of times and, you know, then ultimately moved to China and lived there for about three and a half years and worked there after graduation. Michael was enthralled with China, the language, the people, the culture. And he wasn't there as a tourist. No, Michael really immersed himself in the Chinese world. In fact, at one of the companies where he worked, he was the only English speaker at the entire company. And Michael had a spirit for adventure. I mean, he traveled to over 27 countries around the world. He had this list when he went to China of all the places he wanted to go. It was like 30 different places. And some of them were way, way out in the middle of nowhere where very few Chinese people go. In fact, I actually went with him to one of them that only has one plane flight in and out every day. And he slowly managed to check off all of the... Uh, all these places. And I would say nothing made him happier than traveling. So you said he, he checked off that whole list? Checked off the whole list. Wow. And through all his crazy travels, Michael always brought back the best stories. Steve remembers one time when Michael called him after a trip to a remote part of Indonesia. When he got back, he said, I went into this temple just to look around. And there was a wedding. There were a bunch of people hanging around. So I started talking to them, and they said, would you like to come to the wedding? And so he said, sure. You know, and he was dressed in his shorts. And, and after the wedding was over, they said, do you want to come to dinner and the party? And so he spent the whole day with these people. And, you know, <laughs> I've got these pictures, wonderful pictures of him, you know, with the bride and groom. And things like that would just happen. So he... Yeah. I imagine it would be hard to have your child live halfway around the world from you for three and a half years. But Carol and Steve said that despite the distance, they remained really close with Michael during that time. We had this family WhatsApp, so all six of us were on the same thread and we're always sharing comments and links and fun things and photographs. And so I actually felt super connected to Michael, even though we were so far away from each other. You know, it's different than my generation where you can go away for three months and not speak to anybody. We speak to him every couple of days. Were you ever worried about Michael's mental health when he was in China? Was there any reason to, to think on that? No. No. Never worried about it at all. There's a part of Michael's story that we skipped over. So I want to rewind a few years to Michael's junior year of college. He had just returned from a study abroad semester, also in China. So when Michael came back from the semester abroad in China, uh, he was 
depressed and for the first time visibly depressed to us. And he was depressed because he had not become as much of an elite Chinese speaker as he was expecting when he started at the beginning of that uh, semester. So he went into a depression, and that's the first time we had ever seen anything like that. And he saw a therapist, and he was on some medication, and and then he uh, went back to school in the fall and continued that treatment, and then was able to emerge from it and you know, as far as we could tell, was living a very normal life for the next seven years. What was that like for you as parents, seeing your son struggling with depression at that time? Well, you know, I mean, we got pretty good guidance from the doctors and we were worried about it when it was happening, but we also felt like he was going to get better, and he did. Michael had always been completely grounded and completely solid, and the idea that he was now somehow a little unhinged was unsettling, but his entire life had been the other way, and I just figured he's going to get through this, because fundamentally who he is is not that person who's in the middle of this depression. So I, I certainly worried about it, because... You know, when you see your child looking at something in, I guess, what I would regard as a little bit of an irrational way, he he thought that he'd missed his opportunity to become, as Carl said, an elite Chinese speaker. And from our perspective, it's like you have your whole life in front of you. There's lots of opportunities to do this again, and you're already really good. So I didn't understand the intensity of his feelings, but I didn't worry that it wouldn't ultimately resolve. And it did resolve. But seven years later, Michael falls into a second depression. And the outcome this time is tragic. You know the, the word heartbroken, and it's just a word. But when you go through this, it's, it's more than a word. I mean, you, you, the, the physical pain is excruciating. We'll be right back. So Michael spent three and a half years living in China after graduation, and he loved it, everything about it. But eventually, it was time to come home to Boston. He came back at the end of 2016. It was just right around his birthday. He was turning 27, and he was coming back and trying to figure out exactly what he wanted to do. After a few months of thinking, in talking to people in different fields, Michael decided he wanted to focus on product management. So he enrolled in this 13 or 14 week product management course and really liked it. And, and then he, this is where I'd say his perfectionist tendencies really got the worst of him. And so he finished that and, and he set out on a job search, or at least that's how it appeared. Michael spent the next four months on this job search. But he wasn't just looking for a job. He wanted the perfect job. But when you're looking for the perfect job, it's really, really hard to find. And in his world, it was extremely narrow. There was some particular thing he was focused on, and there was only barely any of it available. 
And then the other thing you do when you're a perfectionist is, you know, there's always something. You read a job description and it has 28 job characteristics and nobody in the world meets all of them. But you look at it if you're a perfectionist and say, well, I don't meet number 24A, so I can't really apply for that one. And so Michael sort of spun his wheels for four months. On his own, we really didn't have any idea what was going on. You know, I think we had an instinct that nothing was happening. And then he became really concerned about the idea that there was this four-month gap from the product management course. And that was really the start of sort of this spiral. He got more and more fixated with the idea that I, I, I've waited too long, my credentials aren't good enough, I can't remember enough from the product management course. Mm-hmm. You know, all things that were untrue. And, you know, Michael had all the credentials to do any number of jobs. But in his own mind, he wasn't seeing it. And that really led him to to be quite depressed. At this point, it had been a year since Michael returned from China. And with that milestone in mind, Michael started to convince himself that he was somehow permanently unemployable. You're looking at everything through this very distorted lens. And so the distortion of, wow, maybe I'm permanently unemployable is something that you can convince yourself of if you are very depressed. And the healthy mind looking at that could say, wait a minute, you know, let's get some perspective here. But but the depressed mind doesn't see it that way. He would share some of this with you. So, so that was actually a complication. So one of the issues that Michael was wrestling with was because he was 27 and then 28-year-old man, it was very important for him to establish his independence from us. Uh, he was actually living with us at our condo, and I think it was really important for him to be doing this on his own. And because of that, I know there were a couple times where he might mention to me that he was dealing with something painful, and I would say can we talk about that? And he would say, because he was a very nice person, he'd say, you know, mom, I don't want you to feel bad, but I can't talk to you about this. This is what I'm talking to my therapist about. I mean, we knew he was depressed. He was absolutely concealing the level of his depression. Did you ever worry? Because you had saw an episode previously Did you worry that Michael wouldn't come out of this depression? Never. Never crossed my mind. Never crossed his therapist's mind. Our view of it and the way he characterized it, it was fundamentally an employment problem. He gets a job, and he's fine. He just needs to get sort of going. And and that was it. And the idea that it was either something that would not get better or you know, in the most extreme case and the way it did end, could not have been farther from our minds. He had an MD and a therapist, and they had both talked to him about suicide, and neither one of them thought that he was a suicide risk. And we certainly weren't on suicide watch for him, um, not only because of 
what we had heard from the therapist, but also because Michael was leading an unusually engaged life for someone who was in a depression. He had a volunteer job that he was going to. He was seeing friends. He was continuing to interview for jobs, even though he was not in a great condition to do that. But he was interactive. You know, he wasn't in a dark room for a bunch of months. He There was no substance abuse. You know, he didn't have the long history of depression. We were not estranged from each other. I, I mean, he was really living an, an engaged life. I use this example sometimes. There's a, there's a homeless person who sits in front of the grocery store that we go to. And I feel terrible for this person, but he's out there every day sort of asking people for money, and I feel like that person's got it a lot worse than a lot of people, and certainly a lot worse than someone like Michael, and yet he hangs in there. And so how do you know for someone who's so much better off that that there's something so dark inside? You just have no idea. Which brings us to February 17th, 2018. So it was Saturday. Uh, Michael had told us he was going away for the weekend with with a friend. And uh, I think Carol had gone out to like a spin class or something. I'd probably go to the, gone to the gym. It was, you know, cold February day, late morning. And we're sitting around just having something to eat. And the doorbell rings. And I go to the front door. And as I walk up, I can see there are two policemen there. And I'm thinking, ha-ha, like, what did I do? You know, mm-hmm. like I can't anyway and and I opened the door and kept smiling and one of them said are you Michael Cohen's father and I said yes is he okay and they said can we come in uh, and yeah. I you know my heart just like was pounding and I yeah. walked in, I said, and I yelled out to Carol, yeah. Carol, come here, something is really wrong. Right, Steve said, and there are police here, come here right now. They said that they had found the car, and they'd found his body, and the identification matched up, and we were sort of in disbelief, like, right. could it have been someone else? How do you know? Yeah, are you sure you have the right person? You're just not prepared no matter what you've been through in your life, you're not prepared for that. So then we're like, we're just out of our minds. So one of our other sons was upstairs and we called him down and he... Hold on a second. Later, I remember he said he knew something had hor- horrible had happened because he heard this screaming from the first floor, unlike screaming he had never heard before. And of course, Steve and I don't remember any of this. We just must have been in complete... I mean, I'm guessing we were screaming, but like, I don't remember the police leaving. I don't remember closing the door. I don't remember like exactly what happened in that moment. Uh, We we must have just started screaming. And then we called our, our other two children, and our daughter was in D.C. visiting some friends, and we told her, you need to come on a plane right away and she said can I finish brunch and we said no I made her mm-hmm. I have made a reservation for you and she said what's going on and I said oh, we'll tell you when we get the, when you get here mm-hmm. and then our other son who lives in Boston 
we told him kept to come over right away, and he, I, I will never forget the anguish, the screaming, mm-hmm. not just the the sheer agony, yeah, from him, um, this sheer like just horror at losing Michael, right, and um, um, and it was a terrible thing. And then by the time Sarah, our daughter, we picked our daughter up at the airport, she had texted the other kids right. and she texted all three of them and she'd gotten responses from Andrew and David and I the last text to Michael oh. was you know he wasn't responding right the last text was I love you and I thought she said praying or yes. something like that right. and so we see oh. this text and so by the time she got there she knew that something had happened to Michael because she hadn't heard from him and then she also knew that if it was like a grandparent who died steve's father is very old that that we would have told her over the phone and we had said we need to process this with you in person it was just the worst time and you can tell we're it's it's still very very Fresh. I mean, Michael died um, about five months ago, a little over five months ago. And, um, but telling his siblings and being together as a family in the moments after the police left our house, like that whole day, it's the worst time in our lives. And you have to do things like you would never think about. So, like, of course, what do you have to You have to get the body back. You have to talk to funeral homes. You have to go to a cemetery and pick out the place where you're going to bury your child. I, I, I mean, like, you have to do things that you just never imagined in a million years you would be doing. And, um, and even now, like, just the whole, the pain of it... Um, there's like you feel almost there's physical pain of it and there's the a mental emotional pain and it's so unbearable that sometimes we say I felt kind of numb today when we talk to each other and like now in like the months that have happened and we feel like that's self-preservation because you actually can't endure the physical and emotional pain of this kind of a tragedy 24-7. But any time we have to retell what we've just told you about that moment and that day, we just dissolve. You know the the word heartbroken, and it's just a word. But but when you go through this, it's it's more than a word. I mean, you you the, the physical pain is excruciating. Hmm. Um, it's it's really un it's unbearable. Uh, right, I can't imagine anything anything like it. With a suicide death, you have an additional layer because you're thinking about was this preventable and, you know, we should have done this or what if we did that? And that is a process that that goes on 
kind of indefinitely. And I don't know. We still wrestle with that. We probably always will. How soon did those moments, like the moments of what ifs, like did you have a lot of what ifs? Oh, my God. From the very first second, it's like, how could you miss it? The second thing is there are things that if people had done differently, us and others, you could have had a different result. In fact, the therapists, both therapists that Michael saw and also one that we saw, said that, that despite the fact that Michael killed himself, that was an exceptionally unlikely outcome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a term that that people use. It's called the tyranny of hindsight. And the ability to look back and see something and understand it much more clearly than you ever could have in the moment is extremely painful. And I think, you know, Carol and I don't feel guilt because I feel like we did everything that we knew to do for Michael. But not feeling guilt about it is different than recognizing that if some things had gone differently, perhaps the outcome would have been different. And so Mm -hmm. you can feel very sad about that. Mm -hmm. The grief that Carol and Steve have felt in the last few months is something you can't describe. So raw, so deep, so painful. And like they said, it's mental pain and is actual physical pain. Maybe you've felt grief like this in your life, or perhaps you've seen a friend or family member experience it. I mean, I've heard a mother scream, and I can't even describe that sound, no less describe the feeling. How have you managed to keep living your lives? Was it a point where you felt like, I have to continue living? Well, yeah, so that's a thought that comes to you right away. You think, I can't really live like this. And, you know, and you think, how am I ever going to feel happiness again? Am I going to live out the rest of my life just in buried in grief? But we have three other kids that we love, like, more than anything. And they deserve lives that are everybody's great as they would have been. And their lives are different now, like they're scarred in a way, but they deserve to be as happy as possible. And we want to make that whatever we can do to make that happen. And and the other thing is, look, we're still alive and we struggled a lot with, can we have fun? You know, can we like laugh? And I think we got to an understanding that there's always going to be this sadness that is around that sort of hangs over that comes up and sometimes it's more sometimes Mm -hmm. it's less but having Michael around is not an option and so it's not like I can say well if I don't go out and have lunch with a friend and talk and laugh if I give that up Michael's going to come back Michael's not coming back you know and I would give up everything to bring Michael back Mm -hmm. but I can't so my only option is to make the best of whatever else I can do in life. And I, I don't know how much Carol feels the same way, but you know, you, you start to think it through. And, and when you think it through, there's kind of only one choice. Yeah. You know, I do feel there's a certain part of me. I had this spark about myself, this joy, my optimism, and all of that has really taken a hit. And I, I don't really know what the future is going to look like in terms of does that 
ever build back up, or is it kind of a permanent hit? Does does grief change? Does it change even over these short months? Does it is it different from that day till now? And what's the difference? Oh, it's it's quite different. I mean, you never fully recover, but but it's it does get less intense. In those first few months, I mean, we, we would wake up every morning at four in the morning, our eyes would just open up and we would talk for four hours, yeah, we five would, hours. We would ruminate on something about Michael's suicide or Michael or a what if or something and we would just focus on oh, it. it absolute uh, torture. Yeah. You know, because terrible. You're, we're all programmed to solve problems and we would sort of try to deconstruct this and say, well, what about this? And then you bump up against very harsh reality that it doesn't matter. You can't solve this problem. You could right. understand this problem all day. Solving this problem means bringing Michael back, and that's not happening. Over time, you you just start to adjust. The niece of very good friends of ours, who was very much like Michael, a stellar student, a wonderful person, high achiever, um, inexplicably killed herself six years ago and her mother said to us it's it's the longest year of your life you know every day takes forever mm -hmm. um, and you know that starts to get a little less insane but it's still you know it's a year of torture typically when somebody dies of suicide it's not disclosed in the person's obituary. But in Michael's obituary, you wrote, quote, in December, without warning, Michael slid into a depression from which he seemed to be emerging during his final weeks. His decision to take his own life, a life of so much accomplishment and promise, was completely unexpected and shocked everyone who knew him. Why did you decide to be so candid about Michael's suicide? Well, it actually never crossed my mind not to be candid about it because Michael, as my daughter put it, you know, Michael died of a mental illness, and a mental illness that was not terribly visible. And the idea that somehow you need to be embarrassed about that, it just never crossed our minds. Right. You know, it took us a month before we were in any condition to be able to even write the obituary. And when we were talking about the the obituary itself, it never really occurred to us that we would not say something about his depression and suicide. It's not like we had the conversation and said, well, should we say it or should we not say it? We wrote it and it wasn't really a discussion. Well, one of the things we've learned from all the people we've talked to who either had family members who killed themselves or who thought about it uh, themselves, is that concealing it is really the differentiator between whether you make it or you don't make it. Hmm. And so the stigma that prevents people from talking is deadly. According to the CDC, 
Suicide rates have been rising across the country in every state over the last few years. Did you know that suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S.? The 10th. And as of 2016, it was the second leading cause of death among people between the ages of 10 and 34. Suicide is preventable, but only if treatment is available and accessible. What do you know about suicide now that you wish you had known before? Well, I think the most important thing might be I mean, this is a very difficult question because, you know, people who don't appear to be suicidal can be suicidal. Mm-hmm. And, and so what is it that, that lets you know? I'm not sure there's a good answer for that. This mother of this niece of friends of ours who killed herself said that, you know, her daughter started getting better in the two weeks, or appeared to be better in the two weeks before she killed herself. Sometimes people get better because they are just getting better. And sometimes they're getting better because they've decided to kill themselves. And in a funny way, the pressure's off. You know, unlike physical illness where in many cases you go get an MRI or an X-ray and you understand what it is. With mental illness, you're going down into a cave and you're shining a flashlight a bunch of different directions and hoping you find something. You have to rely on people to somehow disclose it. It's extremely hard to figure out unless someone says something, which is why I think if you can somehow eliminate the stigma or the shame associated with it and people can talk about it, you'll get more information than all the diagnostics you can do, but I, I don't know. But also some people have said to us more than one, you know, when I was suicidal, I would never tell my therapist because I was afraid that the person would be obligated to institutionalize me against my will. And so they withhold that information. So there's that piece of it, too. It's just a very difficult area. I can't imagine what Carol and Steve have been through. I truly can't. But I can hear in their voices how hard it is to sift through their emotions, the suffering, the pain. How do you move through grief? As Carol and Steve said earlier, they often wonder what the future holds for them. Will they ever feel happiness the same way again? Optimism? Joy? But there's one thing that always brings a smile to their faces, no matter what. Did you find out things about Michael that you you might not have known about him as a mom or dad, you know, or there were there conversations like that you would have with people? Yeah, but only good things. Like, yeah, like, fun things. You know, we uh <laughs> like things that I you know, like we had uh when our kids were young, we it was total chaos in our house and we had someone come and live with us for a couple of years and and she was telling us a couple of weeks ago that when Michael came to visit her, she was in England that they went out to the pub and they danced like wild. And Michael's kind of a, I just thought of Michael's kind of a reserved guy. Yeah. He said, we danced all night. It was the most fun thing. Yeah. Or they'll say, yeah, oh yeah, Michael was really into karaoke. And we'd be like, really? 
<laughs> that throw you for a loop right there, huh? That. <laughs> so um, it's actually been really important for us to connect with Michael's friends in China, Michael's friends um, from college, from all different facets of his life, um, who we really didn't know before. And they've reached out to us, and we've had some really incredible conversations, in fact, one friend put together this whole book about their lives in their respective adventures in Asia and they're living there. And and the whole Chinese community got together and sent us this book of remembrances. So I have to say that when I get to know some of these friends of Michael's or people in his life that I didn't know before, I actually feel a link and a closeness to him. So that's become pretty important. And it's hard. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard because they're going to go on with their lives and they're yeah. going to get married and they're going to have children. And, yeah. you know, these are all things that were very much very visible in, in Michael's future. And, you know, one of the things that somebody said to us, I forget who it was, that you don't just lose the person, but you lose the whole future that you had planned with them. Right. It was you're letting go of all the hopes and dreams you had for his future. As, as well as him. And it's so true. Talking to me, what is the effect of that? Is there any feelings after an interview like this? I know walking in that, in that day can be pretty hard. What are the feelings after having an interview like this? Well, um... One of my biggest fears is that people are going to forget about Michael. And I'm, and I, it's very important to, to me and, I'm, and I think to both of us uh, that friends and people who knew Michael well, that they continue to think about him and talk about him and remember him. So I think the opportunity to have this conversation with you and have it be sort of out there um, is a way of keeping our thoughts and our experiences with Michael preserved. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing the story of your son, Michael. Sure. I wish we weren't here telling it, but... Yeah, wish we weren't here. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides 24-7 free confidential support for people in distress as well as prevention and crisis resources. The number is 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-TALK. The Trouble is a production of WBZ Chicago. I'm Shannon Kaysen. The producer is Candace Mattel-Khan. The executive producer is Brendan Benazak. Connect with us on social. We like to hear from our listeners. We're at The Trouble Pod on Twitter, or you can always send us a note at thetroublepod at gmail.com. Subscribe to The Trouble on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. 
and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.